Good morning. I've heard some really good things about this church, and uh, it is great to be here and experience the good worship and the uh, spirit that's here. And I knew your former minister, Kent Hickerson, all the way back in Bible college, and got to meet uh, Greg yesterday and saw him in different situations, and he's got a lot of poise, and I just hear great things about his preaching, and you are blessed to have two guys, your former preacher and uh, Greg, who appear to get along, and that's kind of rare for two guys like that, and I owe so much to Bob Phillips. Bob Phillips was a breath of fresh air in the Meadville Christian Church when he came, and I was a nine or ten year old boy and he probably contributed more to me being in the ministry than any preacher I know and uh, such a model he's to this day one of the best Christian men that I know played golf with Bob yesterday and I've got a bad habit of using slang and getting upset but he hits he hits some bad shots and he still doesn't use any slang he's just an amazing guy but I've got to admit, I'm a little disappointed to see Kent Hickerson. He has aged so badly, hasn't he? Have you noticed that? But I, I, uh, I heard an encouraging word for Kent and for me. Uh, I heard the other day about an 84-year-old widower who got engaged to an 82-year-old widow. And he went into the drugstore and he said to the pharmacist, do you have ACE bandages here? He said, yes, we do. Do you have arthritis medicine? Yes, we do. Do you have Depends here? Yes, we do. He said, I guess you're wondering why I'm asking all these questions. And the pharmacist said, well, I was wondering about it. And he said, well, I'm engaged to get married, and my fiancé and I were thinking about registering here for our gifts. <laughs> so, Kent, there's, there's, there's some hope. <clears throat> Can we put uh, John, the 14th chapter, on the screen? And uh, I'd like for us to read uh, this responsibly. I'll read the first part, you read the, the second part. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Can you think of a more troubling time than today? There's so much economic uncertainty. The stock market is a roller coaster. The dollar has been devalued. There's over 8% unemployment. America is $16 trillion in debt. And many of our retirement packages have lost their value. And some financial experts are predicting that the days of America's prosperity are over. And Jesus says to us, don't let your hearts be troubled about that. And there's such political rancor. Republicans blame the big spending president. The president blames the do-nothing Congress. The Democrats blame the Tea Party. And it seems like nothing is getting done in the political realm. And Jesus says, don't let your heart be
be troubled. And there is a decline of moral values in our land that concerns all dedicated Christians. The proliferation of pornography, 50 million babies been aborted since Roe versus Wade was passed, and gay marriage being endorsed, and all the greed and self-centeredness. It just seems like our country is coming unraveled, and that we're on uh, a, a giant frozen lake, and we hear the ice cracking beneath our feet, but we don't know which way to go, and there's no leader to lead us out. And Jesus says to us, don't let your hearts be troubled. It doesn't seem like there are more natural disasters today than there has been in our lifetime. More tornadoes and earthquakes like was in Haiti and tsunamis and droughts and fires. And it's not just that we have a glut of news. I think these seem to be the beginning of birth pangs that Jesus warned about in Matthew 24. But Jesus says to us in this uncertain time, do not let your hearts be troubled. And many of us have our own personal problems to deal with. Maybe you're a worrier and you're asking yourself all the time, what if there's an accident? What if it's cancer? What if my kids can't afford that house? What if my grandkids don't get along in school? What if they get a divorce? And Jesus says to us in the midst of all of our stress, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, wouldn't it be a great thing today if we could leave this building after this service with a new sense of God's peace, the peace that passes understanding reigning in our hearts? Remember that Jesus spoke these words in the midst of turbulent times for him. It was just hours before he was going to be crucified. And he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, what reason did he give for his followers to be at peace? What were they supposed to do? He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Put your trust in me. He said, you believe in God. Trust also in me. Let's say that you're at a party, and all of a sudden you get an excruciating pain in your stomach. And you're just doubled over in anguish. And a stranger comes up to you and says, I am a physician. Take these two pills, and you'll feel better in 15 minutes. Would you take those pills? I think first you'd want to know about the credentials of that doctor. Where did he get his degree? What testimonies does he have of people he has treated? What uh, record does he have as a physician? Now when Jesus comes to us and he says, don't be troubled, put your trust in me, what are his credentials? Well, he is trustworthy because of his supernatural identity. He said in John 14 verse 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus was no ordinary man. He was God making a physical appearance on the earth. When the angel appeared to Mary, he said, That which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit, and you shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. You can put your trust in Jesus because he is God. And Jesus is trustworthy because of his impeccable integrity, too. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. Now think of that. Jesus never sinned. When he was a little boy, he never sassed his mother. He never lied to his dad about where he was going. 
He never cheated in synagogue school. When Jesus became a man, he was the only person who ever lived who kept all of the Ten Commandments perfectly. He once asked his enemies, which of you accuses me of sin? I could ask you that. Which of you could accuse me of sin? And some of you who know me well, like Bob Phillips, would come and stand in line behind my family with a long list of things that I've done wrong. But nobody could accuse Jesus. He was examined by a hostile judge. And Pilate said, I find no fault in him. You can put your trust completely in Jesus because he's perfect. And he's worthy of your trust because of his keen intellect. No one could match the intellectual brilliance of Jesus. Even when he was 12 years of age, the lawyers and the teachers of that day were astounded at his understanding of Scripture. And when he began to teach, the common people heard him gladly, but the enemies, the intellectual elite, could not trap him with their questions. A temple guard was once sent to arrest him, and they were so mesmerized by what he had to say, they came back empty-handed saying, we've never heard a man teach like this man. Here we are 2,000 years later and his words still stimulate our thinking and challenge our behavior. Jesus is by far the smartest man in the room. You can put your trust in Jesus because he's omniscient. And Jesus merits your trust because of his miraculous power too. In John 14, 11, Jesus said, Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles. Only Jesus could Cause demons to flee and a deaf man to hear and a dumb man to speak and a, a man dead in the grave for four days to come back to life. Only Jesus could take a small boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people or walk on the water. A politician of that day came to Jesus and said, now we know that you're from God because nobody could do these miracles that you do except God is with him. Jesus is worthy of your trust because he's omnipotent. And Jesus is worthy of your trust because of his sacrificial death. The religious leaders of that day looked so, well, so irreligious beside him. They were envious of him and they plotted to kill him. And Jesus permitted it to happen. Jesus was not the victim when he died. He didn't die a martyr's death. He died a vicarious death, a substitutionary death. The Bible says God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's imagine that there's a condemned murderer on death row who is going to be executed tomorrow morning. But tonight, his identical twin brother, who is a priest, comes to visit him in the cell, ostensibly to administer last rites. But in the seclusion of the cell, the two exchange clothing. And the condemned criminal walks out free in the garb of a priest and the priest, in the garments of a condemned criminal, goes to the electric chair tomorrow morning on behalf of his brother. That would be incredible grace and love. That's a picture of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, 7 predicted that the Messiah would come to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. We are condemned to die in our sins. We're under a death sentence. And Jesus came into the prison of our world, as the choir sang this morning, he volunteered to, to die in our behalf, and our sins were laid upon him at the cross, and we walk out free, dressed in the robe of his righteousness. What incredible love. You can put your trust in Jesus, because nobody ever cared for you. 
like Jesus. And Jesus is worthy of your trust because of his predicted resurrection. You know, we can't predict the future. A weatherman can't predict really what's going to happen in five days. They can't predict the stock market. We have a contest in our home every year at the basketball tournament, the NCAA brackets. And this last year, my 11-year-old granddaughter, who doesn't know squat about basketball, beat me in that, in that contest. We can't predict who's going to be in the final four. But Jesus predicted exactly what was going to happen to him. He said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to wicked men. They will crucify me. But in three days, I will rise again. And nobody believed that. But he did exactly what he said he was going to do. In Luke 24, the Bible says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember? Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and be raised again? Then they remembered his words. Listen. If a man can predict exactly when and how he's going to die and he says, I'm going to be in the grave for three days and then he comes back again, he can handle any of my problems. And that's the Jesus who said to you and to me, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is worthy of your trust because he's alive. And he's worthy of your trust because of his present position. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. The Bible says that Jesus ascended into heaven where he's at the right hand of the Father praying for us making intercession for us. Satan accuses us. Jesus defends us. And the Bible predicts that one day Jesus is going to return to this earth and he's going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's the Lord who says to us, don't let your hearts be troubled. No matter what's happening, put your trust in me. He's worthy of your trust. When I was nine years old, about the time that Bob Phillips came to be our preacher, I started playing Little League Baseball for a team that was uh, about four miles away. And sometimes after practice, one of my teammates' dads would drive us home and he would let me off at the end of the dirt road that led about a half mile up to where I lived. And if we drove home near dark, I was very troubled because that half mile walk for a nine-year-old boy was pretty frightening. Every rustle in the bushes was a coyote or some monster that was going to jump out at me. I set the world record for a half mile for a nine-year-old boy several times. <laughs> so after practice, if it was getting darker and darker and the adults were standing around talking and delaying, I would get more and more troubled and then sit in the back seat silently pouting. But once in a while, Mr. Neiman would stop and let me out. And I'd look across the road and there I could see the silhouette of my dad. He'd come down to wait for me and walk home with me. And suddenly all my troubles were gone. Because a little boy with his dad, there's nothing to fear. Listen, your heavenly father promised you that he will not have you walk in the darkness alone. David said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
I love that plaque that reads, Lord, help me to remember that nothing is going to happen to me today that you and I can't handle together. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. And then he said, put your hope in heaven. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. The reason we get so troubled, even as Christian people in this world, is we have our focus on this earth. We're so concerned about accumulating possessions and indulging in this world's pleasure and making sure that our relationships are stable. But deep down we know all those things of this world can be taken from us in a, min in a minute and we worry and we're troubled. But Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on earthly things. If you won a free trip to Hawaii and you're going to go to Maui in two weeks, even though you've never been, You'd read brochures, you'd watch videos, you'd plan where you're going to snorkel and where you're going to swim and where you're going to play golf and what helicopter trips. And you get excited about going to Hawaii. And we ought to be focused on heaven as Christian people. But I'm going to suggest to you, we don't think about heaven very much. Because we say, well, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Oh yeah, I want to go to heaven when I die. The reason we want to go to heaven is we want to keep on living. And the will to live is the strongest of all human instincts. Did you hear about those three old guys who were in the funeral home because a friend of theirs had passed away? They were lined up on a bench and somebody asked them, what do you want people to say about you when they see your body lying in the casket? One old guy said, well, I'd like for them to say about me is he sure was a good family man. Second guy said, I'd like for them to say sure was a generous man. Third guy thought for a minute and said, I'd like for them to look at me and say, look, he's moving. <laughs> Isn't that what we all want? We want to keep on living. You want to go to heaven when you die? Oh yeah, I want to keep on living. But is that the only reason we want to go to heaven? It's, if so, it's no wonder we're so troubled about what's going on on this earth. We need to set our minds on the things that are above and think about what heaven is going to be like. Jesus said it's the Father's house. Now if you grew up in a loving home and somebody says in your family, let's meet back over at Dad's house. Immediately that conjures up the values that are most important to you. Security and love and acceptance and food and fellowship. In my father's house. If you didn't grow up in a good home, you think about those values to the nth degree. Jesus said, in my father's house there are many rooms. I like that phrase, many rooms. Uh, like the King James better, it says, many mansions. I believe that there's a personal room with our name on it. Reserved. The Bible says it's reserved in heaven for you, and it can never perish, spoil, or fade. Just like you can reserve a hotel room in a city with a credit card, when you became a Christian, you received the deposit of the Holy Spirit, and you have this guarantee of a room in heaven for you. But he said there are many rooms. That means there are going to be a lot of interesting and fascinating people in heaven. In fact, John in Revelation 7 9 says, I looked and before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Every once in a while somebody will say to you about your church, as they said about our church, I can never go to church there, it's too big. Always say the same thing. Well, don't go to heaven then, you're going to be really uncomfortable there. <laughs> Number that no man can count from every people, language, nation, and tribe standing before me in front of the Lamb. Think about the people you haven't met yet who are going to be absolutely fascinating in heaven that you're going to develop friendships with. 
But not just people you don't know. There's going to be a reunion with people you do know. We used to sing a song. Friends will be there I have loved long ago. And joy like a river around me will flow. I've got a friend with me today, Bob Dabney. And his dad, Butch Dabney, was a founding elder in our church. Had a great sense of humor and a great passion for heaven. I was once teaching a Saturday morning men's Bible class. And I was talking about death and dying. And I said, how many of you guys are over 70? A bunch of guys raised their hand. His dad raised his hand. I said, do you fear death more or less as you get older? And they all said, oh, Bob, you fear death less as you get older. I said, why is that? And Butch said, because you got more friends in heaven than you got on earth. <laughs> Fisher Jones was 91 at the time. He said, Bob, I actually hope I die pretty soon. My friends are going to think I didn't make it. <laughs> you know, think about the reunion. In my father's house are many rooms. Your grandparents, your parents. This past week, Chuck Colson, a real general in the Christian faith, died. He's going to be there. Friends will be there. Many rooms. But I think there are more than just people in heaven, those rooms. I picture a worship room where you can go and praise God and hear the best of Christian music and just John Newton, come up here and lead us in Amazing Grace. David Crowder, come up here and lead us in one of your praise choruses. George Beverly Shea, come and sing, I'd rather have Jesus. Then we're going to hear testimonies as we worship together. Wouldn't you like to hear a testimony from Noah about what it's like to be on the ark or Daniel to be in the lion's den? Then I think in that worship in heaven, Jesus Christ himself is going to stand before us and he'll open the Bible and begin to teach us things in the scriptures that were there and we didn't see them. And we'll be like the two on the road to Emmaus who said, wow, didn't our hearts burn within us when he taught to us? the scriptures. And I think there'll be a recreation room in heaven where you can go and you can sign up for ski trips and golf trips and scrapbooking clubs and travel tours. You say, oh, that's pretty fanciful. Really? The Bible says that God is able to do more than we ask or imagine, than eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. I think there'll be an instant replay room in heaven. Where you can go and replay any event in history and see it exactly the way it happened and contrast it the way you imagined. Or go back and replay your own life and see how many times the hand of God was upon you and you didn't even know it. I think there'll be a classroom in heaven. Where you can go and learn about things that have always puzzled you. Don't you have a lot of questions you don't have answers to? I'd like to say, now Lord, the Grand Canyon... Did you create it that way? I don't think it was there millions of years of evolution. Was that Noah's flood? What happened to Grand Canyon? Lord, how come the Cubs could never win the World Series? What's, what's the reason for that? Or Lord, Hurricane Katrina, was that a warning sign to America or was that just a natural disaster? Or Lord, in the book of Ephesians you talk about the difference between predestination and foreknowledge. I taught that for 40 years, but I didn't really know what I was talking about. Would you explain that to me? You know, some people think when you die and go to heaven, immediately you're going to know everything. I don't think so. I think we'll have a greater capacity to learn, but all of eternity will be spent in growing in knowledge. Ephesians 2.7 says, In the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. And that word show means to reveal in an ongoing progressive way. In other words, heaven isn't going to be a place where you're bored, sitting around on a cloud strumming a harp. It's going to be a place where there are many rooms, many people, 
and activities to rivet your attention. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Put your hope in heaven. The present stress is not the end. Any more than the crucifixion was the end for Jesus. You're not home yet. Believe Jesus' words. I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's not just talking about the second coming. It means when you die, the Lord is going to be there to meet you. We had years ago at the Meadville Church that Bob Phillips was referring to, Lee Carter Maynard, who was a well-known evangelist in the Christian church, great man of God. When Lee Carter Maynard died, he was in his early 90s, and his secretary was sitting by his bed, and she heard him just before he died. He said, I see it. Do you see it? It's beautiful. And he breathed his last. Don't let your heart be troubled. The best is yet to be in my Father's house on many rooms. And then Jesus said, be confident that you're going there. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now here is a sobering spiritual truth about heaven. The majority of people are not going to go to heaven. Although there's going to be a number in heaven greater than any man can count, there are going to be more people who don't make it to heaven than those who do. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Christianity is both the most inclusive and the most exclusive of religions. It's inclusive because Jesus said, whosoever will may come. There's no barrier to anyone if they're willing to submit to Jesus Christ. But it's exclusive in that there's only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. Now, I know in our culture today, if you say there's only one way to Jesus, you, you get a, a lot of objection to that. Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, said, people object to there being only one way to Christ not because there's one way, but because it's God's way, not man's way. He said if there were two ways to heaven, people would be upset that there weren't three. If there were ten, they'd be upset that there weren't eleven. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember when those 30-some miners in Chile were trapped in that mine underground for almost two months? And finally they dug uh, a hole a half mile down and that little rescue capsule was lowered. When that capsule made a way out for those guys, you think anybody said, is this the only way out? I think I'm going to wait for some other way. I think I can dig my own way through. No, they were elated that there was a way out. And we're trapped in sin, and Jesus came down and provided a way out. The Bible says, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God has provided a way. Jesus said, follow me. Now, how can we be sure that we're following Jesus, that we have this promise of life eternal so that our hearts aren't troubled. I think it's as easy as A, B, C, and D. A, admit that you are a sinner. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you compare yourself with the worst of people, you can feel smugly righteous. You say, well, I'm better than Adolf Hitler and I'm better than... Uh, Lady Gaga or somebody. But if you line yourself up with God's law, 
you realize, I have sinned. You list the Ten Commandments. How many of you never broken? Have you always put God first? You've never taken God's name in vain? You've always observed the Lord's Day the way it should? You've never sassed your parents? You, you never lied? You never cheated in school? You've never uh, been sexually promiscuous? You've never coveted? We've broken almost all of them. The Bible says no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. But through the law, we become conscious of sin. The straight edge of the law shows us how crooked we really are. So the first step in coming to God and following Jesus is admit that you are a sinner. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Would you repeat aloud with me John 3.16 if you know it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him won't perish. Now to believe means more than just mental assent. To believe means you put your trust in Christ. Instead of, instead of saying, I'm gonna trust in my goodness, I think God will save me. You're saying, I am a sinner. I put my trust in the perfect work of Jesus dying for me on the cross to save me. Ephesians 2 says, it is by grace that you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anybody should boast. Admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus Christ, and then see, confess publicly that you believe in Jesus. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you get married, you stand in front of people and you make a public pledge to be faithful to this person all your life. Even though it makes you uncomfortable to do that, or is nervous to do that, you do it. When you become a Christian, you publicly confess that you believe in Christ, that you've turned to him. And Jesus said in Matthew, the 10th chapter, verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So you admit you're a sinner, you believe in Jesus Christ, you confess him publicly, and then D, you demonstrate your faith in Christ by repenting of sins and being baptized. In Acts the second chapter, Simon Peter preached the first gospel sermon to the Jewish people. He said, you've crucified the Son of Glory. And they were cut to the heart. They realized they had sinned and said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 responded. To repent means simply to change directions. I've been walking for self and my selfish desires, and I turn toward Jesus Christ, and I walk toward him. I am sorry for my sin, I walk toward Christ. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but when you're stumbling and falling, even you're, you're, you're stumbling in the direction of Christ. And baptism becomes the benchmark, the dividing line between the old life of sin and the new life in Christ. Baptism is a symbol that just as Christ died to his, and was buried, we died to our sin, and we're buried, and we rise to walk in newness of life. Jeff Walling. I'm going to read first Romans, the sixth chapter. It says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly be united with him in his resurrection. A preacher friend of mine, Jeff Walling, tells about a, a, a preacher in North Carolina, an old guy, who wants to make sure that everybody understands that baptism is a burial with Christ. 
So instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then lowering people under the water, he lowers them under first and holds them there and says, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, this time they're gasping for air, and they come up with a whole new appreciation of a near-death experience. <laughs> now, Greg doesn't baptize that way, praise God. But baptism is that symbol. We've died to sin. We rise to walk in new life. Uh, Buford Bryant used to say, the baptistry is a tomb and a womb. It's a tomb where we die to self. It's a womb where we rise to walk in newness of life. And the book of Romans says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit living in you will give life to your mortal bodies. So don't let your hearts be troubled. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. He's worthy of your trust. There's nothing that's going to happen to you today that you and he can't handle together. And get your focus off this world and on to heaven. In your father's house, there are many rooms, and one has been prepared for you. And follow Jesus Christ. He's the only one that has gone in the tomb and come out the other side with nail-scarred hands. He's totally worthy of your trust. The best is yet to be. A preacher friend of mine named Glenn Wheeler lost his wife to cancer, wife Evelyn, uh, some time ago, and they were so close, he really, really missed her. And he said, Bob, what I miss about Evelyn were not the major things that we did together, but the little things. Like after I preached on Sunday morning and everybody was gone, I'd lock the door of the church and we'd walk to the car and Evelyn would always slip her arm in mine and say, you're a good man, Glenn Wheeler. I said, man, I'd like to hear her say, you're a good man, Glenn Wheeler, again. I said, you know what else I miss about her? I miss her cooking. And you could look at Glenn and know he loved to eat. He said, man, she was such a great cook. But he said, I really liked it when she'd pick up my plate and say, keep your fork, Glenn. Boy, I love to hear her say, keep your fork, Glenn. Because I knew she'd made some delicious dessert. But he said, Bob, sometimes at night when I'm in bed and I'm fighting back tears because I'm so lonely, it's like I can hear the Lord say, keep your fork, Glenn. The best is yet to be. Don't let your heart be troubled. Let there be in you a peace that passes understanding because in your Father's house there are many rooms. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this world is not our home. Thank you that in the midst of all the troubles and turmoil, there can be in our hearts a peace that passes understanding. Thanks for our hope that never perishes, spoils, or fades, kept in heaven. Help us to leave today with the peace of God that transcends all understanding, ruling in our hearts. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bob. I hope you heard this morning that who Jesus is. And I hope you this, heard this morning that Jesus is for you. And this morning, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I...